Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Tom Rosenbauer, and he'll be answering your questions on hatch strategies. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Tom a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. Receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on the right side of one of our web pages, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You'll also be able to find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag fly fishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now and let other people know about the great show that we're, that's taking place right now. The content of this broadcast is copywriting. It's the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Tom Rosenbauer about hatch strategies. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. These Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Again, that's leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Tom, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Tom's section that says Register for our free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Tom's book, The Orvis Guide to Hatch Strategies, courtesy of Lions Press. Here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. And the question is going to be something that Tom and I talk about during the show. Take good notes, pay attention, submit your answer, type fast. At the end of the show, and you may win Tom's book, The Orvis Guide to Hatch Strategies. When you do submit your answer, you'll be using the form on our homepage. And it's the same form that you can ask questions during the show. Use that same form when the question comes up at the end of the show, and hopefully you'll win Tom's book. Our guest tonight is Tom Rosenbauer. Tom has been with the Orvis Company for 44 years, and while there has been a fishing school instructor, copywriter, public relations director, merchandise manager, and was the editor for the Orvis News for 10 years. He is currently their chief marketing enthusiast, which is what they call people when they don't know what else to do with them. 
as merchandise manager, web merchandiser, and catalog director, the titles under his direction have won numerous gold medals in the multi-channel merchant awards. Tom was awarded Fly Rod and Reels Angler of the Year Award for 2011 for his educational efforts through his books, magazines, articles, and podcasts. Tom has been a fly fisher for 50 years and was a commercial fly tire by age 14. He has fished extensively across North America and also fished on Christmas Island, Bahamas, Belize, Kamchatka, Chile, and the fabled English chalk strings. He is credited with bringing beadhead flies to North America and is the inventor of the big eye hook, magnetic net retriever, and tungsten beads for fly tying. He has about 20 fly fishing books in print, and he's also been published in Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, Catalog Age, Fly Fisherman, Gray Sporting Journal, Sporting Classics, Fly Rod and Reel, Audubon and Men's Journal, and others. Tom is the writer and narrator of the Orvis Fly Fishing Guide podcast, one of the top outdoor podcasts on iTunes. He lives with his wife and son in southern Vermont on the banks of his favorite trout stream. Well, Tom, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. It's been a few years, but... Oh, yeah, good to have my guests return. So well, thank you, Roger. That was a wonderful introduction. Very flattering, and good to be back. <laughs> good to be back. You made it. You lived that life. See, so it's uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, you should be proud of yourself, and I'm sure you are. Yeah, it's well, a great I'm contribution I don't know if to I'm the proud industry. of myself, but um, <laughs> you're not <I'm> proud. <laughs> no, no, not really. My wife's proud of me. I'm, yeah, she still got a lot of things gotta to do. Be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, honestly, Tom, there's a lot of people who look up to you in the industry and have learned a lot from you over the years. And uh, it's always great when you're able to, to give back a bit more and teach us all a little bit more about fly fishing. So we're going to try to do that tonight, try to pick your brain a bit about hatch strategies and see if we can't learn a few things tonight, because that's what my show is all about, is helping people learn more about fly fishing. So here we go. Gary Cook wrote in and asked, he said, Tom, when you were starting fly fishing, how the heck did you keep as much of the vital hatch information in your head or on your person as you could? Did you start out in an organized fashion to learn everything you needed to learn about hatching? <laughs> no. Well, no. you know, of course, when I started out, a lot of things were different, Roger. One is that there weren't really any good books on fly fish entomology. I mean, there were like Ernie Schwebert's hatches, which didn't have photographs. It was all watercolors. And Art Flick's book was only good for a small corner of the Catskills. I mean, Art Flick's Streamside Guide is a wonderful book. It's only appropriate to like the Schoharie and the Westkill in the Catskills. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, Ray Bergman's trout didn't really have much about hatches, in it. and that that and then of course Marinaro's book, Modern Dry Fly Code, was specifically for the Pennsylvania chalk streams. So there wasn't there wasn't much out there, and so there was that. And the other thing was, is I was a teenager and I had lots of time. You know, I was a kid and I had I had lots of time to poke around and observe. It's, you know, it's the luxury that adults these days, most of us don't have. So I was lucky in that respect. Yep. I did keep, I did start to keep notes on hatches. I quickly gave it up because I'm not a very good fishing log taker. Mm -hmm. I've always found that it, that it takes something away from it for me. So I don't keep a fishing log. 
I take notes when I'm in the process of writing a book. But, you know, when I went to college, there were, you know, when I went to college in the 70s and then uh, Selective Trout came out and Hatches and Hatches 2 came out and Gary LaFontaine's Cast Flies came out, there were lots of good references. And I also minored in aquatic entomology in college. I had textbooks like Ute Singer's Aquatic Insects of California and more textbook type books. So I got into it. I got into it then. I've never been a good hatch chart maker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like when you say, you know, journaling for fishing. I don't, it's kind of like journaling for your life. I mean, I've made attempts at that a few times in my life, and I've yeah. just kind of petered out after a week or two. You know, I did. Yeah. It's just not something that I take to. And I know I have friends who have journaled every day of their life, you know, without exception. And I just find that incredible. But, yeah, I know. And a lot of guys do keep very specific journals for their fly fishing. You know, I kick, my, yeah. I kick myself for not doing it. But I kick myself over and over again, and I still don't do it. But, yeah. you know, if, yeah. if you're so inclined, I think it's a great it's a great habit and a great practice. It's just not right. a good habit that I have. Well, it sounds like you got a good kickstart with that taking entomology in college. I mean, that's the basis for it all, really. But let's say you were just getting started and you wanted to learn, getting started by, I mean, in fly fishing, you're new. You yeah. heard, hey, mayflies hatch on uh, my stream near me. Uh, yep. local piece of water, what would you do to learn what you needed to learn to fish that piece of water for mayflies? It's kind of what I put in, in my book, Hatch Strategies, which, by the way, is not about matching the hatch. Hatch Strategies, is about the book is about nearly everything else that we do to be successful during a hatch because I think the fly is about 10 or 20% of the puzzle the other things we do are a lot more important. But where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. So I believe that it's really important to know the aquatic insects by order. In other words, mayflies, caddisflies, stoneflies, midges, you know, to a lesser extent, damsels and dragons, if you're fishing in lakes. And I think studying their life cycle. In other words, do they have a pupa stage? What do they do in the larva stage? Where? How do they mate? How do they come back to the water and lay their eggs? And I think if you study those insects to the order level, I think you're going to be 90% there for all the entomology you need. Um, you know, getting specific with every species of mayfly, not only is it a lot of work, but there's a lot of mayflies that haven't even been identified yet that we see on trout streams, and you're not going to find them in a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So once knowing that, do you combine local knowledge from, would you go out to guides talk to them? Do you do observation in the water? Are there other resources that you use? <laughs> in my experience, Roger, most guides could care less about hatches. I remember when I was writing, I don't think it was this book, it was another book, and I called all these guides 
that I knew, particularly in the Rocky Mountains, Montana, mm-hmm. Colorado, Wyoming area, and I said, what do you do when you see hatch? Oh, we just roll by and we, we throw a couple of dries and we keep going. There are exceptions to that. I mean, there are guides that will, you know, park the boat and you will let you get out of the boat and work a hatch, but you can't work a hatch when you're whipping by in a drift boat. Mm-hmm. So guides are <laughs> the amateurs, the civilians, like the you know the people that haunt the Henry's Fork or that wade fish the Missouri or that fish the South Platte, they're the ones that are really going to understand the hatches. Now, there's exceptions. Somebody like Pat Dorsey, uh, right, on the South Platte, nobody knows the hatches better. You know he's a rare breed. Walk wade guides are uh, few and far between these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a much different game, the walk wade versus the drift boat fishing. Yeah, it is. It is. You're stalking the fish, and you you have time to work a fish and to observe a fish. But, you know, if you're sitting in a drift boat, even if you anchor up, you're not going to stay there that long. You're not going to stay there long enough to Mm -hmm. really, really fish a hatch. What do you think about talking to the local shops about, you know, their patterns and so forth. Do you feel the same yeah, I think about that? Yeah, I think that's one of the best things is to go into a local fly shop and say, hey, what's hatching and what bugs do you recommend? What flies do you recommend? Because every river has its specific hatches and every river has kind of a favorite imitation of that bug. And the fly shops and the guys. I mean, the guys are going to know this stuff. They just don't pay as much attention to it when they have a client in the boat. But, yeah, your local fly shop is going to be the place to go to get the best information. Well, if you, let's say you're, um, they say, hey, there's a blue wing olive hatch that's been happening over the past couple of weeks, still working mm-hmm. strong. And yep. they say, well, we've got these three flies that are local favorites. How important mm-hmm. really is that? Because, I mean, I've heard that at every fly shop I go to. Yeah. yeah, it isn't a blue-wing olive a blue-wing olive, and can't you imitate them with a standard selection that you well, have? A, you know, Roger, it's an interesting thought, and I have a theory about that, in that for a, for a hatch like a blue-wing olive or a PMD or a green drake, a hatch that you're going to see for a fair amount of time and you're going to see a lot of good fish rising, you need multiple imitations in the dry and the emerger. And the reason isn't so much that one fly is better than another, but let's say you're working a big brown trout and you're fishing a standard hackle blueing olive or comparadon, whatever. You're fishing a a decent blueing olive imitation. And the fish comes to the fly and at the last minute it drags and the fish refuses it, splashes at it, slaps at it, whatever. That fish won't come back to that pattern. They can tell one pattern from another. But the thing is, the mayflies are also doing lots of things. They're emerging, they're fluttering around, they're falling over, they're crippled, they're bunged up. The fish see a lot of different profiles in that same ballpark, but they know they know not to take that fly that dragged in front of them. I mean, this is not always the case, but it's, it happens enough so that you have to switch flies. 
You mm -hmm. have to switch mm -hmm. patterns. And you have to go to something a little bit different, just a little bit different of a profile. Mm -hmm. You know, rides a little bit different in the water. But, they, you know, I've seen it time and time again where if they refuse a fly, they're not going to come back to that fly. And they will continue to feed on the naturals, but you've really got to switch flies. So I think it's important, and you, you don't need specific imitations of every mayfly. You know, you need some little olives. You need some cream flies. You need some bigger brown flies. You don't need to get specific. But you need different variations of these different patterns. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. Nobody's really ever, <laughs> in all the years I've been doing this show, has ever brought that up as a specific way of looking at it. We talk about presentation, but the association of, for instance, a bad presentation <laughs> with a specific profile fly, that's, that's something new. So uh, I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's almost cliched, and you when you're able to watch a fish, okay, so you'll throw a fly out there and a fish will refuse it for whatever reason. It dragged or the fish, or it was too big or whatever. And the next time you throw that fly out, the fish will tip its head up a little bit and then go back down and not rise to it. And the third oh, and the fourth and the, fifth, <laughs> and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth time, that fish will not even nod at the fly. It won't yeah. even respond to it. And it's, it's really... It's really cliched, not cliched, but it's, you know, it's a pattern that I've seen time and time again. Yeah, yeah, interesting, yeah. Jerry Sherman in Lexington, Kentucky, he wrote in and said, that my particular river has a periodic mystery hatch of tiny midges that is difficult to match. Any suggestions on how to solve this? <laughs> uh <laughs> Well, I don't, it depends on how tiny they are, Jerry. You know, if they're a size yeah. 32, then good luck. I know a stream that, I know a, there's a tailwater in Connecticut where they regularly fish size 32 flies, and it's, a, it's amazing. I don't fish it that often because I don't like fishing size 32 flies. But the one thing that I would suggest for, for midge hatches is that the fish are often keying on the pupa, and I, you know, just under the surface or even fairly deep, the pupa is a lot easier for the fish to capture than the adult. And I think you can get it when your fly is a little subsurface, I think you can get away with being a little bit off on your imitation. So instead of concentrating on the dry, I would try concentrating on a fly just under the surface, uh, you know, Take a tail like an unweighted midge nymph or one with a glass bead that doesn't sink very fast and grease your leader to about within about six inches of the fly and just throw that out there. Try to match the size of those midges if you can. But the pupa is often the key. When I pump mm. stomachs of fish like on the Missouri during a midge hatch and the fish are feeding very actively, I'll look at the flies, and most of the flies will be emerging pupas and not adults. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do you ever fish that as a like a dry dropper? I mean, a, a dry with like a 12-inch, you know, midge pupa dropper off of it? Honestly, if I've got fish rising to a hatch, I fish a single fly, Roger, because I think that you got too much chance of a bad presentation with two flies, 
and it often will make the flies drag a little bit more when you got two flies hanging on there. So uh -huh. I know it's a, a strategy that people do, but if I've got if I got a fish that's feeding steadily on the surface, I'm going to fish a single fly, and I'm going to make the most accurate cast that I can make to that one fish. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, Tom, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back, and uh, we'll dig further into half strategies with Tom Rosenbauer. So hang tight, everybody, and be right back. So much more than a musky fly shop. Whether you're a musky fly fishing guide, an experienced musky hunter, or just getting into predators on the fly, wherever your life's adventures take you, their proven lineup helps you be more successful on the water. They have rods and reels, lines and flies for musky, pike, and bass. Most of their flies are tied in-house, and they fish them at every possible opportunity so that they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back, relax, and enjoy legendary fly shop service, and please let them know if there's anything that they can help you with. Next time you think of musky, go to muskytown. That's muskytown.com. Or call them at 763-312-6012. That's muskytown.com or 763-312-6012. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Tom Rosenbauer about hatch strategies. If you'd like to ask Tom a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. But, Tom, I always ask my guests at this point in the show, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? Do you have any new projects you're working on, new books? What's happening? Well, I just finished a book that went out to uh, the Stackpole with all the pictures and everything about a month ago. It's called Finding Trout, and it's about, it's about reading the water, but a lot more. It's about finding the right place in a trout stream and finding a trout stream in general and it was a long project. It was about a three-year project, but it's finally done. Oh, wow. And I don't have another book. I don't, I don't have another book going or even under contract at this point, which is rare for me, and it's kind of nice. <laughs> Do you find that you're usually, you know, throughout your career, you've always been working on some book or another? I mean, yeah, pretty much. I yeah. always have been. I, I always have been. But right, I'm taking a little break this summer. Yeah, well, good for you. It gives you more time to fish, right? Of course, yeah. you can't get paid for doing that research that way, right? <laughs> well, yeah, but I manage to fish all nearly every day. So, Really? Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's terrific. Anything else? Anything happening at Orvis? Or? Oh, there's always stuff happening at Orvis. You know, there's always top-secret new products that I can't tell you about. <laughs> You know, I'm good friends and fishing buddies with the fishing product developers, so I kind of yeah. I kind of know what's going on in the back room. But they get mad when I talk about them Leak. too soon. So yeah, <laughs> okay. I have to watch right. myself. <laughs> okay, well we'll let that go, and we'll be looking forward to that uh, finding trout. When is that supposed to be? Oh, it'll probably it'll probably be a year, a year and a half from now. Down the road, okay. Maybe okay. a year, maybe yeah. a year. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Depends okay. On, you know, well, print, we'll be looking printing, for that. Printing stuff these days. It's uh, you know, it's been tough to schedule time with printers and stuff. So. Yeah, that's what I hear. That's most other things. Yeah, yeah. 
Dale Yamamoto, Illinois, wrote in and said, what is the best way to sane the water to see what's there? That is depth, time, etc." Well, it depends on it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for, and I noticed there were a couple of questions about saving. Right. If you're if you're looking to find out what's in the water and what's going to hatch, the best way to do it is to use a screen or a little aquarium net and put it downstream of you and do a little kicking on the bottom of the river. I mean, you don't want to be too aggressive with it, but you want to kick. You want to make sure that you kick some rocks and some weeds and some and some mud and sand so that you get a, a good sampling of uh, what's down there. I like to use a, of course, I do it in the backyard so I can just run down with an old screen from the house. But a, a big piece of screen is works great. Um, but if you're saning, if their fish are, are rising or you know they're feeding and you're saning kind of the upper water column and midwater. Unfortunately, you have to get out in the feeding lane where the fish are. And, you know, hopefully you can get e either upstream or downstream of them so you don't disturb them. But often what's drifting out where the fish are, because they're going to be in the drift line, they're going to be in the line where all the stuff is drifting, and you're in the shallows or in the slower water, there may be nothing drifting by you. So you have to somehow get out into that same threat of current that they're in. And honestly, you know, seining went during a hatch when fish are feeding on something that I can't figure out what it is. Often, when I put a seine in the water, I can't figure out what it is either. I don't get anything. So yeah. It's frustrating. It yeah. can be really frustrating. Well, that's what uh, Kevin Howell wrote in, and that was the other uh, question you were referencing uh, from Chicago. Yeah. He was recently in Deckers. That's in Colorado on the South Platte. He placed a same net to see what was there, and he came up empty. So that could be a, like you're not far enough out in the water or uh, not in the right yeah, place. Yeah, well, he, uh, he didn't say whether fish were feeding. If the fish weren't feeding and yeah. he just put, put a seine in the water, there may not be no, nothing. There may not be much drifting at this particular time. You might have to stand there for half an hour to catch something. Mm -hmm. If the fish yeah. are feeding and there's a hatch, then, yeah, you really got to get into the same current lane there. And What if, what if they're even, not feeding then? Then if they're not still feeding, there might it. not be much drifting unless you start kicking around and kicking some stuff off the right. bottom. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about what gets the fish activated during a hatch, you know? I mean, yeah. they, they kind of get into a frenzy at a certain point. How does that yeah. scenario develop? Well, I wish I knew. I don't have the answer. <laughs> um, it's got to be in this book somewhere. Let me look. No, I don't have the answer. I mean, there's there's a, there's a number of things I think happen, Roger. One is that the, the nymphs are rising from the bottom, and the fish are you know the fish are lower in the water column generally, but they start chasing the nymphs up to the top, and then they say, oh, there's stuff floating on the surface, and that's a lot easier to catch because it's pinned in the surface film. So I'm going to start feeding there because it's easier to feed there. There's that. There's also, and I noticed somebody asked a question there, where the it seems like the smaller fish start first. I mean, the smaller fish are always kind of aggressive and looking at the surface. And I think the, the bigger fish notice that or hear that. They hear the splash. 
And the other thing is, I'm not sure I believe this, but it was told to me by a, a very astute biologist who I admire and and respect, Bob Bachman. Uh, he's one of the best trout biologists I've ever met. He thinks that trout can smell a hatch when it starts. Hmm. So uh, how I don't know how we're going to prove that. Because nobody's yeah. going to pay a Ph.D. student to figure out if trout smell mayflies or not during a hatch. Nobody's going to write a grant for that. So I don't know how we're going to find that out. But, yeah, somehow they do this. Somehow they figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, want, I wonder if there's a, uh, well, like you said, uh, one you know, other, there, there must be kind of a synergy that happens amongst the fish just seeing each other moving around, too. I, I think so, think, yeah. You know? Yeah, I think so, um, yeah. It's just like humans, you know, and everybody uh, pointing over here, and then everybody starts looking and starts moving in that direction. We don't uh -huh. know why, yeah. but everybody else is doing it, so why not? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of the, the lemming or the, the social proof kind of thing in, in marketing where somebody else is doing it. It must be good. So um, I'd, like yeah, to, I'd, I'd like to invent a device that makes a noise just like a rising trout because you know those days when you go out there and you see all those mayflies on the water and nothing's taking them for whatever reason if we had a device that would simulate another fish rising that might be a good product for <laughs> like a duck call or a moose call yeah or something yeah like yeah that, huh? trout call. <laughs> i tried throwing little tiny pebbles out there but it doesn't work it doesn't work it doesn't yeah work. yeah, yeah it doesn't work. You know, what's the best way to, to find, you know, fish that are feeding on a hatch? Is it, is it always a visual thing, or are there other things that you might look for? Walk your ass off. Yeah, you know, it's you can never predict when and where fish are going to feed on a hatch. You just It's just, it's a crapshoot. And, and it, you know, I, I got trout in my backyard, and yeah, I know they're going to feed right before dark, but they're, Sometimes when they're feeding in the afternoon, and I don't have a clue why, and I wouldn't have been able to predict it. But you look for water that's – this is what I like to do. I like to look for water where it slows down after a riffle. So you get a riffle that dumps into a pool. And if you kind of park yourself right where the riffle starts to slow down, you're able to look up into the riffle for bugs and down into the slower water for rises. And if you see a lot of insects and you don't see any fish rising, you got to move. You got to mm -hmm. move because somewhere there's going to be fish feeding on those bugs. Generally go to slower and slower and slower water, particularly if the water's high or fast. You got to look for those real backwater areas. Looking back at these or recirculators or whirlpools or whatever you want to call them, that's the generally one of the first places fish are going to respond to the to a hatch. But well, don't we boy, also have to yeah consider streams versus lakes? Where with streams that hatch could be moving every day down or up. Yeah. Or up, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what was there yesterday may not be there till next year. <laughs> if the hatch is moving up or down or whatever they're going. Yeah, yeah, you know, generally, and I think somebody asked this question, generally hatches last for, 
at least a week. I mean, they might dribble at the beginning and peak and then dribble off. But, you know, the salmon flies, the big stone fly is kind of an exception where it really only hatches for a day or two and then moves upriver. But most of the hatches that we see are going to be at least a week and sometimes three or four weeks, like a lot of the PMDs, sulfurs, and olives hatch for weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Green drakes are pretty... Uh specific i think too aren't they uh, i think so yeah the, yeah 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 they don't last a whole long they don't, um, they don't thing. last long no you know you brought that up so and it was a question here that uh, how long do you keep fishing a hatch in other words you know i've heard a lot of people talk about oh well keep fishing the salmon fly because they remember it even if the hatches aren't happening they're good for right. another week yeah for the, for the take do you find that as well yeah, it seems like fish have a trout have a memory of about three weeks. I know that after the salmon flies, I've found that for about three weeks you can throw a big salmon fly imitation, and the fish will come up and smash it if they haven't been pounded all day long by everybody else with a salmon fly. But you know, after the grasshoppers, after the first frost, and most of the grasshoppers die. You usually get get away with a grasshopper for two or three weeks, and then they, I think, they kind of forget about it or ignore it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So there's a certain amount to that, I take it. Yeah. We've got a couple questions came in here on the internet. Mike Abramowitz in Potomac says, "I have often noticed that after tying on a different fly, other than the first or recast, will result in a hookup." Uh, yeah. This is so true that what Mr. Rosenbauer stated in his talk. So sounds like Mike has experienced that. Uh, yeah, which good. We're talking about as well. Good. Yeah, yeah. And another one here. Oh, not everybody knows what they're not all as old as we are, uh, <laughs> Tom. But uh, uh, Gil wants to know what "grease your leader" means. <laughs> It's not an old term, really. Yeah, it goes back about 50 years. <laughs> oh, does it really? Well, you know, greasing your leader is just putting some kind of oily stuff on your leader because nylon is, the specific gravity is very close to water, unlike fluorocarbon. And any kind of oil, oil from your nose or uh, butter from your sandwich, if you, rub it, if you rub it on a nylon leader, it'll float. But what most people use is a paste fly floating. Most of us have some paste fly floatants, and you just run that down your leader, and it'll float. It'll float it. Yep. So and Sorry, what yeah. you were referring to before was do it down until the last six inches or so, and then do not grease the last six inches. So that, yeah, that just sink, so it just sinks a little yeah. bit there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's see here. What else did we have that came in here? Phil McCartney, I've often mistakenly think thought that big fish want a big meal. Please describe some fisheries in which large trout continue to feed mainly on insects rather than minnows and other relatively large food sources. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, anywhere where you got big cutthroat trout, upper Yellowstone River, the lower Yellowstone River, Teton, the South Fork of the Snake, you'll catch your biggest cutthroats on a dry fly. Occasionally on a streamer, but not that often. There's a lot of your, a lot of your tailwaters in, in Colorado. 
What's the one? Is it the Taylor Fork? The one, those giant rainbows below the dam? The Taylor, that, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, that eat midges all day long. Yeah, there are plenty of true. There are plenty of places. And I think you find it more typically with rainbows and cutthroats and to a lesser extent brook trout. Yeah. That they will con they tend more to be insectivores throughout their life, whereas brown trout, when they reach a certain size, they will eat an insect, particularly during a heavy hatch or when they're abundant, but they're going to spend a lot more time hunting for minnows and crayfish and frogs and mice and things like that. They're going to, and it seems to be a brown trout thing is they get a certain size and they want some big meat. Yeah, yeah. This is a little off topic, but it involves your neighborhood. So Gil also, who asked about greasing the, the leader, says being based in Vermont, where might you advise someone living in Southern California to visit his first fly fishing trip in New England? Where would you suggest to go to? Hmm. I would go to the upper Connecticut River on the border of Vermont and New Hampshire. It's a beautiful river. It's a big river. There's a couple of good guides up there. And you probably won't see another drift boat all day long. It's a long ways from anywhere. It's three hours from three and a half hours from my house in southern Vermont. But it's a beautiful river. It looks like a western river. And the trout fishing is good. The scenery is gorgeous. There is nothing else to do up there. It's a very remote area. Not super remote, but, I mean, there, there aren't a lot of activities up there. Let's put it that way. Um, that's one thing I would do. The other thing I would do is concentrate on the small streams. Just concentrate on little brook trout streams. And anywhere in the mountains of New England, where you find running water, you're going to find brook trout. Mm. Yeah, that's where they started, right? I mean, that's the native fish to yeah. that area. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of wild uh, brown and rainbow streams. Well, not so much rainbow. There's a few wild rainbow streams. There's wild brown trout in most of these streams, particularly a little bit lower down in the reaches. But when you get into the headwaters, it's almost pure brook trout. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to read this. It's not a question, but I'm going to read what Chris wrote in here, and then we'll take another quick break. Thank you, Tom, for making my introduction to fly fish, fishing a great one. With your enthusiasm about this great hobby, it's been good for my physical health. I don't catch a lot of trout, but it makes me happy just being on the river. I only own four fishing books, the Orvis Stream Guide to Trout Food and Their Imitations, Art Flick Streamside Guide to Naturals and Their Imitations, the Fly Tying Bible, and Dick Stewart's Bass Flies. <laughs> you are the reason I got into fly fishing. Just wanted to thank you, Tom. You're an awesome Oh, guy. that's so nice. Yeah. Wow, that's so flattering. Thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. You, so you never know how you affect people, you know. And uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, he uh, definitely made an impression on Chris. So good for you, Chris. Wow, um, well, we'll take a quick break here again, Tom. We'll be right back and uh, answer some of the more of these questions that folks have written in. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi Flies prides themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly-tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable, synthetic, and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components that have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or would like 
to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Tom Rosenbauer about hatch strategies. If you'd like to ask Tom a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll try to get it answered here tonight. Okay, Tom, back into it. Looking through some of these. Yeah, okay, here was one. How do you identify the insect that is hatching? Are you do a lot of capturing, or, or should you, if you're just learning how to do this? How do you make sure you're fishing the right insect? Well, you'd never do. That's okay. the thing. If people expect me to to walk up to a river and, and look at a trout rising and say, oh, that fish is eating a sulfur, they're going to be greatly misled because you don't know. You can make a couple of educated guesses uh, by doing various things. One is to just look on the water. And, of course, as I said before, it always helps to get into the same current lane the fish is in. And you need to get your eyeballs down to the surface because there might be a a small mayfly, there might be a spinner lying flush in the surface film, there might be a nymph that's just under the surface that's emerging, but you really got to get your eyeballs down close to the water and you got to observe. That's one way of doing it. But then often when you do that, you see like four or five different insects. And you say, okay, well, which <laughs> now one are they the hell, taking? Huh? <laughs> and there's a number of ways of going about that. One is not so reliable, and that's looking at the rise form. People say they can tell what insect fish are taking by the rise form, and I believe that the rise form is totally based on where the fish is in the water column when it's eating that insect. So if it's if that fish is, is hovering just below the surface, it's going to sip regardless of what it is unless it's a really big fly, it's still going to sip a fairly good-sized fly. If a fish is lying in two or three feet of water and fast water and it has to come up quickly to take that fly, it's going to take it with a splash. And, yeah, a more subtle rise is generally going to be a smaller insect or something in the film, whereas a splashy rise might be an emerging caddis or a fluttering mayfly, but not always reliable. And then from there, you just try a bunch of flies and see, uh-huh. and see what works. And the thing is, the thing is, it gets complicated because you got to make sure you're not getting dragged and you're not spooking the fish, right? It could not be the fly at all. It could be the fact that the fly is dragging and the fish isn't refusing the fly because it's the wrong fly. It's refusing the fly because it's dragging or because you're throwing your fly line on top of the fish and it's spooking when your fly goes over it and then it's coming back into the the lane and feeding. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it, but if you're sure that you're getting a good float, you're not spooking the fish, and you've gotten a dozen floats over the fish, then it might be time to change flies. But there's also Mm -hmm. timing, too. You know, the fish have to rest in between meals. They They have to go down and they have to handle called handling time in a fish. They have to swallow it and expel air from their gills. 
before they can take another bug. Although sometimes they'll rise multiple times and then do the handling thing. So it can be the timing, but when all else fails, throw a 16 parachute atoms at them on a light tippet and you're probably going to catch them. <laughs> that whole parachute atoms. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a standby, yeah. I'm telling you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'm listening to myself and I'm making this really complicated and, you know, it, it's not that complicated, but you, you do have to factor, you have to be a predator and you have to factor in these different things. Is the fly dragging? Did I spook the fish? And the thing we agonize most about is the fly pattern. And I really believe if you're in the ballpark, you're within a, a fly size and the profile is about right, the fly isn't going to be that important. But the fly is the only thing we can easily change. People are much more likely to change flies, whereas maybe a change in position moving five feet upstream or downstream or lengthening your tippet is going to make all the difference in the world. But we sit there in the water or we stand there in the water and we keep switching flies and it's not always the answer. Yeah, yeah. Presentation is a big thing, you know. So, yeah, Michael Abramowitz wrote in about that same thing. He says, Penn's Creek in Pennsylvania has prolific fly hatches occurring at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You face yeah. that challenge. And that is what you're just talking about. Of not yeah, really I mean, knowing. If, yeah. if you can zero in on an individual fish and just stare at it and see if you can see what it's taking, but it's often difficult. You can't get close enough. And if they're taking emergers, you really can't see. You really can't see what they're taking. Or even if taking spinners, you know, you really can't see that spinner on the water. So it's often difficult. And you often just have to guess and hope yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. why that's why we love fly fishing. Is there there aren't any quick answers? Another one was here. Uh, are there different stages of the hatch? If so, how do you you know? So do you fish them differently? So, you know, we've talked about emergers and spinners and adults and all this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Do you work through a progression through a hatch, or do you just try to figure out where they're at and then work either side of that to try to figure what they're really feeding on? Yeah, a little bit of both, you know, before they hatch, you might want to fish a nymph, although I I don't have great success fishing any, you know, a specific nymph before a hatch. I, I have better luck with just general nymphs before a hatch and not getting too specific, even though I know a Hendrickson is going to be hatching at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Hendrickson nymph doesn't work any better than a Prince nymph or a rubber legs or anything else. Mm -hmm. um, during the hatch, I'll almost always start with an emerger because uh, a lot of the flies are going to be emerging and they're not going to be fully emerged. And honestly, I'll often stick with the emerger through the hatch because, you know, a, a kind of a half-in, half-out type right. of fly where the, the wings are sticking out but the, the abdomen's hanging down in the film. You don't have to be too fussy. I mean, emergers are pretty sloppy looking. I mean, they're... They're kind of right. bunged up and they're crawling around and they're kind of a, just a mass of junk. That's why some of the ugly flies work pretty well. If I start to see fish that are specifically taking fully 
emerged adults with wings, then I might go to a done imitation. And that typically happens, Roger, down in the tail of a pool where mm. the fish aren't seeing emergers because the flies are emerging in the riffle up above. And by the time they float down to the tail, all there are fully emerged adults because the nymphs don't drift down that far. They hatch before they drift down that far. Sometimes, you know, sometimes a real flat water, a standard upright winged fly will work. But, and I'm talking mayflies here, but in general, I'll stick with an emerger or a sparkle done, which is kind of half done, half emerger. Right, hanging in there. An X caddis or a similar low floating caddis fly where you can, you're kind of splitting the difference. Yeah. You got a winged adult, but you still got a shuck hanging on the back. And God, those seem to be just so effective. Yeah, it seems like so many times I'm thinking I should be, I start fishing duns and I'm I'm getting nothing, getting nothing. And then I switch to an emerger and then all of a sudden, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. They're deadly flies. I mean, we don't yeah. like them because they're harder to see on the water. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're a lot yeah, harder they're to effective. see, but they are effective. Craig in Portland, Oregon says, do you generally find it true that smaller fish are the ones rising first at the beginning of a hatch? He says, let's say I'm fishing an evening caddis hatch. If that's true, then should I wait for a while before casting so the smaller fish don't spook the hole? If so, how long? Yeah. Is that really true or... Well, I think it is. Yeah. If, if I know where there's a big brown trout, let's say on the bat and kill, where we, we in the springtime, we can catch a 23-inch brown trout on a dry fly. Doesn't, it only happens for a few weeks, but if you hit it right. And I'll sit on the bank, and I won't fish to the smaller fish because I know if I wait out there, and the bigger fish is probably going to rise right before dark, and I'll wait until that bigger fish comes up. But you know what? If I don't know there's a big fish there, I'll just fish for the little fish. I don't care. <laughs> fish is a fish. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a fish in a hatch. You know? How often do you get the fish a good hatch? If the little fish are yeah. rising, I'll catch them. But if, you know, if I suspect there's a big fish there, then, yeah, I will, I will sit back and wait. How long do you wait? There's no easy answer because I've sat yeah. there I've sat there and waited for that big fish to come up, and he never came up. And then I'll say, ah, damn, I wish I'd fished for those little fish. Yeah, yeah, missed the whole hatch, right? Waiting. Yeah, um, yeah, and it can happen. So you actually wrote, regarding this question, the next question I'm going to ask, a, a whole chapter, chapter 10 in your book, you know, the Orvis Guide to Hatch Strategies. Can you give us some tips on targeting uh, bigger fish in hatches other than waiting out, waiting out the hatch? How do you yeah. go about that? Well, they're often going to be all alone. You know, fish seem to pod up, especially the medium-sized trout during a hatch. And whether it's they feel secure feeding next to each other or they're all just in the best, most efficient feeding place, I've never been able to figure out. But that really big fish is often going to be off by itself. And... If that fish is mixed in with smaller fish, it will almost always be upstream of the little fish. A big fish will not let a smaller fish feed in front of it, usually. They can come in behind it or even off to the side, and he doesn't care. But a big fish does not want a smaller fish getting the food before him. 
or her. So yeah, uh, yeah. And you know, I mean, I mean, it's a rise form too. You know, you, I mean, often this stuff happens in low light or in the evening, and you can't see the fish. And all you can see is the rise form. And a big fish, they can poke their snout out and make a pretty small rise, but usually. You can tell that fish has shoulders by the size of the rings that get pushed off to the mm -hmm. side. You know, I mean, they can fool you, too. They can definitely fool you. But usually you can tell a big fish. And big fish almost never splash when they rise. They almost never make a splashy rise. It's always just the head comes up and goes down, and there's barely a wrinkle on the surface. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, they're, um, they're cagey and they're efficient. Yeah, yeah. Ruben Amador in Colorado Springs, Colorado, wrote and said, what are, he gives you several compliments. I'll get right to his question. What are your go-to imitative dry flies? For example, if you're struggling to match the hatch or don't have the exact size and color matching fly, what do you gravitate towards? Do you have a secret weapon in your fly box when all else fails? No, I don't have any secret weapons. What? You know, I'm a fly. Come on, Tom. I'm a, Give it up. I'm a, I'm a fly tire, <laughs> Roger, and I, I fiddle around with lots of different flies, patterns that I see in magazines or on the Internet or just dream up. But if I had to say, you know, if I had to pick one fly for hatches, it would probably be a, a sparkle done or an X caddis, you know, depending yep. on whether I thought it was. And, you know, honestly, an X-Caddis isn't a bad imitation of an emerging mayfly <laughs> because, it's you mm -hmm. know, emerging mayflies have that down wing. I've fished X-Caddis through mayfly hatches when I know the fish were taking mayflies and caught lots of fish on them. But, you know, something with a shuck. And those two flies, something with deer hair and a shuck. CDC is also another good thing, although CDC doesn't last as long and it's harder to see on the water. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't, I mean, you could Good you movement, could fish, but, yeah. Yeah, it has good movement, and it's very effective. But, man, you can fish Comparadon for hours and, you know, catch a couple dozen fish on it, and it's still going to be in good shape, whereas a CDC fly is probably going to be a goner. Um, yeah, yeah. But th those yeah. would be, those. I think those would be my two go-tos. During both a hat. During Matthews. a hat. Uh, they are. Guys. Yeah, Craig Matthews and... And John Jurasek, I think, worked on the worked on the uh, both of those flies together. Yeah, yeah. The uh, let's see here. Ruben also asked about if you've had any experience with mid-tip sinking lines. He says I've heard about how great they work in still waters, but don't see the point with traditional full floating lines and long leaders, or even intermediate flies that within five feet of the surface. Appreciate any thoughts you might have on that. The question I was asking you is, Ruben was asking about whether you had experience with midge tip sinking lines. Um, yeah. And wanted your opinion on those. Well, I probably cut myself off on person because I have no experience with them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I've never used one. I don't own one. So I can't comment on it. Sorry. Okay. No problem. John... Feinberg, Boulder, Colorado, he wrote in, he says, it seems like in some hatches the fish push back from the table 
at the satiation point. What is the next strategy? And I guess what he's saying is just they get full and quit feeding. Is that, I mean, I'm assuming that is the case many times, right? Yeah, I think so. I'm not so sure. You know, it depends on water temperature, too. If the water is real cold or real warm, they might satiate it. But if water temperature is in the 55 to 65, they're probably not going to stop eating. Oh, yeah? I don't think so. But I guess at a certain point, their stomach gets full and their nervous system tells them to slow down. Maybe just because we've been pounding over them that they seem to stop. We've been pounding over them. Maybe they seem to stop feeding, but it's just the fact that we've spooked them because we've been casting over them so much. Mm. But I, I don't yeah, know. Could be too. Yeah. yeah, I don't yeah. know. Let's see. Okay, Tommy Lorden in Colorado. He, this is kind of a long one, uh, but we'll go through it. If you don't see anything, but you know it's a season for a certain bug, what two-fly rig would be best to start nymphing with? For instance, let's say it's April and you have a degree of confidence that blue-wing olives are around, but could you use any example like bigger drakes or something when you know a bug is supposed to be around, but you don't see anything? Of these alternatives, what stands out? Put on two different stages of the same bug or put on two different sizes of the same bug? Well, it's always a guess when you're subsurface fishing, right? I tend to put on two different sizes. You always need a big anchor fly, big stone mm -hmm. fly or a worm with a tungsten bead on it or a, maybe a big March brown nymph or even a dead-drifted sculpin and then a smaller, smaller either a caddis pupa imitation or a small mayfly imitation. But I'm, you know, I'm one that'll... As I said before, I, I haven't had good luck fishing specific nymphs before hatch, even if I know that a particular mayfly or castfly is going to be hatching, and more likely to go to generic flies. Seems to have just as good, if not better, luck with the old favorite generic flies. Yeah, pheasant tails. <laughs> yeah, ears, pheasant tails, exactly, like yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. And if all else fails, put on a parachute Adams, right? Yeah. Always <laughs> the go-to fly. Yeah, he gives a couple of examples. I think he's just really searching for, hey, I, I don't see anything happening. I know it's supposed to be happening, but it's not happening. Yeah. You know, what yep. do I do? Well, and that's I think a good we've all question. been in that if, position. That's yeah. a good question, and that's what we call fishing, right? That's what we experiment with. And, you know, we're all 12 years old out there fooling around in the water trying to figure out what's going on, and there isn't an easy answer. Yeah, yeah. And I think the first thing is make sure you're fishing in the right places, right? Yeah, uh, make, make sure. Yeah, yeah that's a, hopefully you read the water, you've read the water well enough to suspect that there's some fish in front of you, or you've fished it before, and you know they're there. Yeah, because there's nothing that, pulls your confidence away than not knowing if there's fish in front of you or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you don't um, always know. No, no. Well, you know, what's interesting, <laughs> this is the first time this has happened in some like 28 years because I have a, a small, you know, few-acre lake, that the private lake where I live, and 
we stock it every couple of years, and you know we've always had holdover trout and so forth. So this year I was down there a couple of times fishing. I'm seeing bugs coming off. The swallows are feeding. Uh, uh, there's all kinds of minnows in there. Nothing is rising. Nothing is coming up. Um, uh-huh. A couple other guys went down there. Nothing for them. Sent my grandson down with power bait. Nothing. <laughs> And then one of the guys went out in a, a kayak with a fish finder and went through the whole lake, nothing. So what we found out is there were no fish in the lake this year, either the <laughs> eagles or the herons or winter kill or whatever wiped them all out. There were you got no any otters there. around? I don't think there's any otters. Boy, maybe, that maybe. sounds like an otter to me. Really? They'll take oh, more fish? Oh, they're so than... good at cleaning out a pond. Uh, okay, maybe we'll be looking for that, too. We haven't thought yeah. of that one. But uh, we do have bald eagles and, and blue herons, and uh, I'm sure they take their toll. But but anyway, oh, sometimes sure there are do, no yeah. fish. Michael You know, the thing yeah. is that people people have caught trout in, in, one, in a spot, and they come back two weeks later, and the water, might have, water level might have changed, and the fish could be in a different place. And yeah. I caught fish here last week, so how come I'm not catching anything here? Well, they may have moved a little bit. Yeah. One of my uh, clients and uh, good friends here in Colorado is a guide, Chris Wells, and he was he guides up on the Williams Fork in Colorado, and he said one year the, you know, the fisheries came in and built in a lot of structure, moved rocks around, do everything. He said as a guide, he had to relearn that whole river after they did that the reconstruction of that river. Oh, yeah. A, he said the fish moved all. He didn't know where the fish were, and he'd been fishing it for years, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah had to relearn the whole thing. Uh-huh. So I thought that was interesting. kind of interesting. Yeah. 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 Michael, again, uh, how does the change in climate vary the color of hatching flies? that important or is that you see that a little bit you know the early season flies are a little darker and they tend to get creamier in early summer but then you get exceptions to those isonychias are dark and they hatch in summer and they usually get smaller Mm. as the season progresses but I'm not so sure that there's any kind of color thing they do there are more pale flies definitely in the middle of the season i think in the early summer hmm, interesting gregory in maine says this year the hatches in maine were prolific compared to the past five years maybe longer in some areas of the state march browns and caddis came off in clouds rivers and streams have been at good flows and cool we were thinking that some bugs were, just weren't in these areas anymore the question is, uh, do some bugs abandon areas that don't meet their specs, or do they hibernate on the bottom until all variables for hatching are met for hatching? Well, I think there's always a remnant population. You know, you hear that. I heard a story from someone recently about that, where the hatch disappeared because there was a low water or a drastic flood. and But there's always some remnants. And they fly upstream and lay their eggs and then float down and they redisperse, or they come from a nearby river or a tributary. And we had a similar situation in Vermont where we had very 
good water all summer long. We, in fact, it was often too high to fish in the middle of the summer, which was has been rare for us. And, you know, I think that the bugs had lots of habitat. The, the stream beds didn't dry up, and so there was good survival of the flies. And then this year there are lots of them hatching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's always, yeah. I mean, there's always a remnant population of insects. They don't totally leave an area unless it's severely polluted. Yeah. It has to be really severe. Right, right. Reed Dills in Buena Vista, Colorado, wrote in and said, when you see an egg-laying caddis on the water but no rises, what do you do? Go find fish. You're fishing in the wrong water. If the, the egg-laying caddis are actually on the water, then you got to move. you got to walk. you got to go find some fish. Fish do like, you know, once those egg-laying caddis get down on the water, fish like them. Uh, yeah. So what does just... what does fool people sometimes is the uh, migrating caddis, you know, where they'll fly upstream in big numbers, but they're not hitting the water. They're just migrating, and they'll migrate night after night after night in big clouds, but they never touch down on the water because a caddisfly can live for a month after hatching, unlike a mayfly. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it could be weeks and weeks before those caddis actually lay their eggs and hit the water. Yeah, yeah. Greg in Stone Ridge, New York, wrote in, he says, Tom, on one of your videos, or maybe it was one of your books, a number of years ago, you said something to the fact that you've never seen a fishable hatch of yellow sallies, and anglers shouldn't worry about imitating them. I find this is a very useful fly here in the Catskill rivers, like the Never Sink and the Esopus Creek and its tributaries. I also find that when the yellow ones are hatching, the trout will eat either yellow or lime green imitation, but when the lime green ones are hatching, it's only that's only what they want. So his, his question is, have you changed your mind about this hatch? <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, and no, I haven't changed my mind because I've never seen <laughs> I've never seen a trout eat a yellow Sally stonefly in the east, nor have I ever pumped one out of a trout's stomach. Mm. And what I think happens is that the yellow sallies hatch at the same time as the sulfurs, the Femorella dorothea or, you know, whatever, the, the little, a PM, it's a PMD that hatches in the evening, basically. Mm-hmm. And they're about the same size and they're about the same color. And a yellow sally imitation makes a damn good imitation of an emerging PMD. So, yes, just because you catch a fish on a fly that was designed to imitate a certain bug doesn't mean that the fish thought it was that bug. And the minute I see fish starting to eat yellow sallies, I will change my mind. But I fish the river in my backyard every night, and I fish other small streams, and I see yellow sallies, and... I don't see fish eating the adults. Hmm. Well, the okay. adults aren't on the water much anyways because they crawl yeah. out of the water. They crawl out of yeah. the water to hatch. So, you know, an adult getting on the water, it's going to get knocked down or it's going to come be coming back to lay its eggs like the big stone yeah. But I just don't think fish like them. Yeah, yeah. 
Michael Branovitz wrote in on the internet. It says, how important is water temperature relative to the hatches? Water temperature is everything. Fish and insects are cold-blooded, and they're totally regulated by water temperature. So it is the most important factor. Yeah. Period. Okay. End of story. <laughs> yeah. James and Ammon... Idaho, of all the hatches, what has been the most challenging one to match and have reasonable, consistent success for you? It would probably be the sulfur that hatches on the Delaware River and the Catskills all summer long. It is a frustrating hatch. It hatches in the middle of the afternoon. The fish feed on it profusely and they are incredibly picky. Now, it's probably because those fish get pounded so much. I mean, it's heavily fished, and they feed on the same thing every day. The hatch lasts for months and months, so they get really good at, <laughs> at knowing what a sulfur looks like. And that has been one of the most difficult hatch I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I hear a lot of people talk about the Delaware being just kind of difficult in general, that it's not an easy place to fish. Have you found that the case in general, or is it just uh, one Well, hatch? it depends on the conditions. I mean, you can, get, you can be on there when the fish are stupid, and particularly when the water is a little higher earlier in the season. And they're never super easy, but they're not impossible. I've seen lots more difficult trout in other places and they're not as spooky as trout in other places because they see a lot of boats and a lot of people. So you can get close to a fish and you can work it for a long time because it's you know it's used to seeing people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, Tom, time to wrap things up. I'm running out of time here, and we are going to give away your books. So I want you to hang with me here for just a, a minute longer. Okay. Uh, or two while we do give that away. And uh, we're also going to be giving away one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And like I said, your book, The Orvis Guide to Hatch Strategies, courtesy of Lions Press. So hang tight just another couple minutes, and we'll give all those things away. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call, and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. Again, UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. And just a reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of the show? Just click on that link, leave your comments, and we'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away our prizes. Uh, the winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late, but make sure you do so for our next show. You don't want to miss out on getting a chance at some of these great prizes. So if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we'll be giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support and be part of, so check them out. 
And let me uh, get my database going here. And we'll do the search. And it looks like Josh Friedman, Josh Friedman in Illinois. So congratulations, Josh. You're now going to be a, a member of Fly Fishers International. Thanks for uh, being here tonight and for playing. We're also giving away one-year membership to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, subscription, I should say, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com, another publisher with many books in the fly fishing area and periodicals, so you can check them out, amatobooks.com. Ed Miguel, and Ed Miguel in California, you are the winner for that, so congratulations to you. And uh, I know you both will enjoy your, your prizes there. So now, tonight, I'm going to give away Tom's book, Orvis Guide to Hatch Strategies, courtesy of Lions Press. And I'm going to try something different. I've never tried this before, Tom. Usually I ask a question about something we've talked about. But tonight I'm going to ask everybody, what's your greatest aha or takeaway from tonight was? What was your greatest aha or takeaway? What stood out for you that you learned tonight? And I will uh, just kind of review them as they come in. And when I see something that stands out, then we'll get that as a winner soon. Yeah, got lots of thanks coming in to you, Tom, for all that you've done here from folks. And so what's your greatest aha, your biggest aha takeaway from tonight's show? Tell me what it is, and maybe you'll win the prize. Okay. <laughs> so I want to read some of these as they come in here for you, Tom. Yeah, I want to hear Yellow, them. Yellow Sally's, that Tom misses fish like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, I guess you haven't reached God status yet. <laughs> God. I, yeah. <laughs> Roger, I am not even close. Not even close, huh? Okay. How much... Info Tom has shared with the fly fishing community. And stick with an emerger or sparkle done. <laughs> 16 atoms dry for go-to fly. <laughs> see what else we got. Okay, anything else out there, guys? I'm going to go with Tom Zemina, 16 Adams dry fly for the go-to fly because uh, because that's my go-to fly so many times. It should be a parachute, though, right, Tom? Oh, definitely parachute. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah I should have said that. Yeah, got it. Yeah, so you got to add that, Tom. But, Tom, we're going to, in El Raya, El Raya, I don't know where that is, but, Tom, what you need to do is send in your address your shipping address, so we can send you out a book from Lions Press, and uh, we'll get you Tom's book out there, and uh, you can uh, enjoy that. I know you'll learn a ton about that. So send me your shipping address in the same way that you just answered the uh, or gave us your aha, and we'll we'll get you a book sent out. So the other ones that are came in, biggest aha, another one that came in was changing fly often. Yeah, I think many mm. of us don't uh, do that as often as we should. You know, because well. Yeah, but I think a lot of us do it too often, too. Too often, too. Okay. Okay. Yeah, That'll yeah. work it for a while. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, thank you, Tom, for being on the show with me tonight again. I really appreciate talking with It's always a, a blast talking with you about fishing. And uh, Well, thank you, Roger. Those, are, those were some great questions, too. Really, really good, good, uh, intelligent questions. So 
a great audience, and I want yeah, to thank well, everyone. Yeah, for, well, fishing isn't easy, is it? <laughs> Sometimes, Sometimes it is. Not always. Usually it isn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, usually it isn't. We all have to work at it, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again for being on the show, Tom. Thank you, Roger. Okay, hopefully all of you have found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link at the top line menu. In the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 350 shows, which you can search by keyword, keyword phrase like trout, tarpon, Madison River, dry fly fishing, whatever you want to search for. And I'm sure you'll be pleasantly surprised by what you find out there. Our next broadcast will be July 6th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. On that show, I will interview Taylor Street, and our topic for the show will be fly fishing Taos and Santa Fe. Taylor has been fishing and guiding for more than 50 years. His knowledge of the northern New Mexico waters is tough to beat. Join us to talk about fishing the Rio Grande, Red River, Castillo Creek, and others, and learn about the new rulings by the Supreme Court on the water access in New Mexico, and also how the recent fires there have been affecting the fishing. Join us. We'd love to have you. Be sure to add the show to your calendar. Just click on the Add to Calendar link under Taylor's photograph on our homepage, and uh, it'll put it into your calendar. You'll be all set. Uh, I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Lease Ferry Anglers, Enrico Puglisi Flies, and the Ugly Bug Fly Shop for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.